0: Last week we finished our series on the book of Amos, and I thought, well, why not do one or two more of the minor prophets? Those are the little books at the end of the Old Testament. Minor, not in importance, but in size compared to the major prophets, which each one is almost as big as all the minor ones together. That's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So I thought we would do a few weeks, verse by verse, looking at the book of Jonah. So open your Bibles to Jonah, and that's just two books after Amos, kind of in the middle of those last 12 books of the Old Testament. Jonah. Four chapters, 48 verses, and it has some interesting things. It's a prophecy, but there's only eight words in the prophecy. The rest of it is the story of Jonah. And in contrast to the other prophets, he was very reluctant to go. Now, several of them were slow to go, but they ended up going anyway. Moses, he said, well, I, I stutter. Jeremiah said, I'm just too young, but they ended up going. Joshua, uh, Jonah did not want to go, but God had a way of turning them around like he does with us. It begins and ends a little interestingly, It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, now, um, you know that this was written in Hebrew, and the word now is actually the word and. Now, in most languages, you don't start a sentence, let alone a book with the word and, but it's very common in Hebrew. Another thing is, when it says and, that does not mean uh, once upon a time. Uh, That's what Liberals who do not really believe the Bible think about Jonah. They say it's just a myth or a parable, and um, they say it it just should be once upon a time. No, once upon a time is for fairy tales and bedtime stories for little kids. Now, I said that it also ends in an interesting way. It's one of the few places in the Bible where a book ends with a question that's not answered. We'll get to that later in this short series. It's important to know who wrote this. It's almost certainly by Jonah himself. Who else would know all of this? Uh, And yet it's written in the third person. He doesn't say I, me, my, or even we. But that often happened in other places in the Bible. And sometimes people speak like that. You remember that senator that ran for president named Bob Dole? He usually would say this, he'd say, What's your opinion? He says, Bob Dole believes this. Bob Dole stands for this. People say that's a funny way of talking about himself, but that's what you find in the book of Jonah. He he just simply refers to himself, like this. More importantly, it's not just Jonah that wrote this. It's God wrote it. He inspired it. It says here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so this whole The book is the word of the Lord. What else do we know about Jonah? 2 Kings 14.25 calls him the son of Amittai, just like here, and uh, he's called a prophet there, and um, his prophecies had to come to pass. Um, In fact, the Bible says that was a mark of a true prophet, that if he predicted something, it better come to pass, or what would happen? He'd be stoned as a false prophet. So the, the scholars have debated, now, did this prophecy of the book of Jonah come before or after that one in Second Kings? It really doesn't really matter. But the point is, in one of them, he was very faithful. In the other one, he was very reluctant, just like we are. We're not always faithful in serving God. So uh, I lean to thinking that this prophecy came first, and this was his school of hard knocks. And after that, he learned, whenever God said, go and speak, go and speak. Now there's a lesson here. Jonah got off to a bad start, but he didn't end up a failure. He he tripped and he got up and finished the race. Anybody here ever see that great movie Chariots of Fire? True story. You remember Eric Little running in a race in Scotland? He trips and falls. He didn't stay down. He got up and he ended up winning the race. I'll tell you another great story that I've always liked. This was I don't know forty uh, something years ago. There's a football player, and uh, he says, I'm going to be the next James Brown. Now, anybody remember Jim Brown? In football, they still speak about him in hushed tones. He was great when I was a boy, one of the greatest. And this player said, I'm going to be the next Jim Brown. I'm going to break all of his records. I'm going to be the greatest running back in history. And In his very first game, he had a net gain of minus 10 yards. And he fumbled. And he said, I'll never be the next Jim Brown. But he didn't give up And he became the next Jim Brown. You know who I'm talking about? Sweetness. Walter Payton. First person to break Jim Brown. My point is, just like Jonah, he didn't give up. Maybe you failed in something. Don't give up. Get back up and get back in the race. There's another story about a a man that became a preacher, but when he was thirteen, God had saved him and called him, You're gonna be a preacher? So he went to his pastor and said that God's called me to preach and So the pastor said, well, I'll let you speak on a Wednesday night. Small crowd, okay. And so he got up to speak, and he said, after speaking three minutes, I said everything I knew. And then I got stage fright. Everybody's looking at me, and I broke down and cried. And he said, I'll never be a preacher. And the pastor says, don't give up, young man. If God called you, well, get back up and do it again. That boy became Jack Hiles, who ended up pastoring the largest church in America, in the suburbs of Chicago. So you might have a bad start, but it's never too late like Jonah. Bad start, but he got back up and served the Lord. Also says that he came from gath Hepher, more in the northern Israel, near the Sea of Galilee, close to Nazareth. Now sometimes it's important to see what does the man's name mean. Back then names meant something in Hebrew. Um... In English, our names don't generally mean something. Mine does. Kurt. (laughs) Look that up in the dictionary. It means rude, abrupt, arrogant. But I hope that doesn't refer to me. But uh, his name means dove. And uh, that's interesting. Now, it's the same name as Simon Bar-Jonah, one of the apostles. And it's also the same as John. And there are several Johns in the New Testament. But since his name was Jonah, he flew in the wrong direction. God turned him around, and he ended up flying in the direction he should go. Now, this was written about 760 B.C., probably shortly before the book of Amos. Remember, we looked at Amos, and that that was where the northern tribes, the southern tribes, had already fought and divided. The Assyrians to the east were threatening to conquer The northern tribes, and Amos kept saying, Repent, or repent, or God's going to let them come in and totally decimate you. This was evidently Jonah right before that, also speaking about the people in Assyria in the nation, the the city called Nineveh. And so he gives them a warning, and we'll look at what happens, how they actually took the warning, but then they later went back to their old ways. Notice again the first verse the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now that's often is said how God spoke to the prophets of old. Hebrews one one says in different ways, sometimes a vision or a dream, or even an angel. But there's something interesting about this phrase, "the Word of the Lord." The Word of the Lord came speaking. I'm among several scholars that say this is probably talking about the Lord Jesus before he became a man. He was fully God, and what is he called in John chapter one? The Word. So, be it as it may, this could be what's called a Christophany, the Lord Jesus coming as the word of the Lord to Jonah and telling him what to say. Now, this was a historical event. It is not a myth. Uh, It's not even a legend. It's a true historical story. It's just considered fact by the liberals that this is a make-believe story, just kind of like Hansel and Gretel or Cinderella. How do we know that it's true? There's nothing in here that suggests that it's a myth. The Bible warns about believing myths. At least four times in the New Testament, don't believe in myths. Fairy tales, old wives tales, don't believe those. But what really settles it is in Matthew 12, Jesus refers to this as an actual historical event. Are you gonna say Jesus was wrong? You dare not say that. It's not a parable, it's not a fable. Now, Jesus spoke in parables. A parable is a story that could have happened, but didn't necessarily happen. But this is not that. This is an actual historical event. Once you start saying stories in the Bible are myths, you're going to end up saying Jesus was a myth. And that is a lie of the devil. The Jews always considered history. The Christians always did. And that reference in 2 Kings 14.25 nails it down as... Historical event. Now, I mentioned in Matthew twelve where Jesus referred to this is very interesting. Three times in that one chapter, when Jesus is speaking, he said something that was par- parallel. For example, in verse six, he says Solomon. This, that, he says, and a greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. And then he says a greater than Solomon is here. That's himself, greatest king and are greater than Jonah is here. So what he's saying is, I'm greater than the temple and the priests, I'm greater than the kings, I'm greater than the prophets, I'm greater than everybody. That's Jesus, the greatest prophet, priest, and king. He's God in the flesh. In another way, Jonah is like Jesus. Jesus referred to Jonah by saying, as Jonah was three days in the heart of the earth, so Jesus would be buried three days, and as Jonah came out from the belly of the whale, so did Jesus come out of the earth. So one went down, came back up, so did Jesus. So he's a type of the Lord Jesus. And there's also another type. He's a type of Israel. God commissioned the nation of Israel to go and share the light with the Gentiles. They did not want to do it just like we don't want to tell people the gospel, And so Israel at large was like Jonah. They didn't want to tell the Ninevites and the Babylonians and all the rest of them. But in the New Testament, Christ sent them all out. And there are similarities also between Jesus and Jonah, but also some differences. God said to Jesus, go into the earth and save my people. And Jesus said, yes, Lord. Jonah said, no, Lord. So there are similarities as well as differences. When we'll get to later in the chapter, there's a very obvious similarity. Jonah was in a boat asleep at night, and a storm came. Jesus was also in a boat, a storm came, and he was sleeping, but they reacted differently. One was in the will of God, one was not. Okay, now we'll get back to the text, verse 2, where the Lord said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great, that is big city, Cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was founded hundreds and hundreds of years earlier as one of the oldest cities in the world. Founded and became very, very wicked. And it was the capital of Assyria. That's not the same as Syria. Assyria today would be northern Iraq. And Nineveh was the biggest city. Now, this was the biggest empire in the world at that time. The biggest empire before that were the Egyptians. And then after they built the pyramids and the Jews uh, were released, they kind of went down in influence and the Assyrians rose. And the thing that uh, you have to keep in mind is they were very brutal. They were savage. When they conquered a people, they not only made them slaves, they liked to torture them. We saw that in the book of Amos where God says, I'm going to let them come in like fishermen, and they're going to put their hooks in your lips and drag, and that's exactly what they literally did. When they took people's slaves, they didn't just put them in chains, they put a, a, a hook in their lip and led it around like a, like a bull with a ring in its nose. Brutal. The Assyrians were the ones that invented crucifixion. Did you know that? Way that they didn't, we've got ancient archaeological records that say that they'd capture someone, maybe a slave, or they'd um, condemn a person to death. So what they'd do is they'd take them up, put them on a little platform about 10 feet tall, and right in front of it was this big stake that was sharpened to a a point, and they'd say to the man, you got any last words? Okay, and they'd throw him, and he'd be impaled on that. Can you imagine just kind of dangling the torture that was the first instance of a form of crucifixion, and then later they'd say, "Well, we don't just throw them on that; we want want them to last longer, so let's nail them up there and put a crossbeam." So from there, it went to the Carthaginians, and eventually the Romans did it. So they, these were brutal; they torture people, violent. We also know from ancient records that when they had um, capture enemies, they'd not only put that thing in their their lips that cut off their nose and their ears and their tongue. Now you see why Jonah didn't want to go there. He'd said, that's going to happen to me. Those are our enemies. If I go there and preach against them, they're going to grab me and really torture me. Lord, I'm not going to Nineveh. Someone has said this would be like during World War II asking a Jew from New York to go to Berlin, the capital of Nazism, and walk up down the streets and say Hitler is evil. He's not going to last long. So Jonah was afraid. I'm not going there, Lord. What else do we know about Nineveh? Well, they had famous kings that are mentioned in the Bible. Sennacherib, Ashurbanipal, Sargon, Shalmaneser, and Tiglath Pileser, not very common names in English. They worshiped a goddess named Ishtar, which the same is the mother goddess, like Isis down in Egypt, Asherah of the, Can- of the Canaanites, Diana of, uh, of Greece. The idea of the mother goddess is very old and very wicked. Wicked. Like, what do they call goddess worship today? Wicca, witchcraft, Gaia, Mother Earth, the Mother Goddess. And it's growing. It is evil. If you know anybody that says, let's go to this ceremony and celebrate the Mother Goddess, say, I'm not going anywhere near that. It is evil. You're acting like the ancient pagans in Nineveh. It's called here a great city, verse 2. Also chapter 3, verse 2 probably the largest city in the world at that time. How big? Look again at the very last uh, verse of the book. It says, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. Now, Springfield and some of the little towns around it have approximately 120,000 people, but that's not what it's referring to here. Look at the text. That phrase, they can't discern their right hand and their left, that's used in the Bible to talk about babies. Look that up in the book of Isaiah and Deuteronomy. A little baby can't tell right from left. My right fathers, you've got little children like that. They don't. It's only after a few years can they learn that they're right-handed or left-handed. So what it's saying is this city had 120,000 babies Think of all the adolescents, teenagers, and adults, probably a total of a million people. Big city. In fact, it had a huge wall around it to protect it from anybody that dared to invade them. And it was so high, and it was so wide, the record said they could drive three chariots side by side along the top of that big wall. That would have been interesting to watch the chariot races around the wall. Assyria surpassed Egypt as the greatest empire, but whatever happened to it? Sometime later, after they captured the northern tribes of Israel, they were in turn were conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were in turn conquered by the Persians. They were later conquered by the Greeks, who were later conquered by the Romans. So the rise and fall of the various empires, but God's empire never collapses. Now, the fall of Assyria was also predicted in the Bible by Nahum and Zephaniah. Nahum said it's going to be torn down and become a city of rubble. And uh, Zephaniah then said it's going to be a place where they'd graze the sheep. It's not going to be the great imp- And at this time, people would say, how could that be? That would be like us saying... Lo and behold, in so many years, New York City is going to be a place where all the buildings have collapsed and the only people there are grazing sheep on Manhattan and Long Island. God could bring it to pass. Now there's a play on words, Nineveh in Hebrew means fish. Do we see a big fish in Jonah? Okay, keep that in mind, the big fish idea. So it says here God commanded Jonah to arise and go and cry against them. That's the Hebrew way of saying rebuke them, charge them with sin like a police officer saying I've got a warrant for your arrest. Now in virtually all the rest of the prophets in the Bible, they were God's messengers to bring a warrant to Israel. It's called a covenantal lawsuit. They had come time and time again uh, you in Judah, you up there north, you've broken God's covenant, you've disobeyed, you've gotten to idolatry and here's God's warrant, you better repent or you're going to serve time under his judgment. But here the prophet is, send, is sent not to the Jews, he's one of the few that actually went to the Gentiles, those are non-Jews, but he had the same kind of warrant, repent or God's going to punish you. Now there's a principle here, God holds all nations accountable to him, not just the Jews. But you might say, but they didn't have the Bible. They didn't even have prophets. They had what Romans 1 describes as natural revelation. They knew in their consciences there's a God and that they were guilty and they should repent, but they didn't. So now God speaks through a prophet to them saying, you're evil, you're wicked. God holds all nations, the Jews, the Assyrians, the Americans. We kept seeing that with the book of Amos. God holds the United States of America accountable and God calls Christians to be like Jonah and say, you're sinful, you're under God's judgment, you need to, what? Repent. The Bible says that. And we should be like Jonah and not shirk our duty. This is also a type of the entire world. It's not just Assyria and America, but the whole world is facing Judgment. And so they need to hear the word to, to, to call them to repent and then to offer them the gospel. The point is, we will see later how the Ninevites in some form did repent. When we share the gospel, we dare not leave repentance out. Isn't someone going to say amen at that point? We believe in repentance. Very first message Jesus preached. Mark 1:15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He said it also right before we went back up to heaven. Luke 13. Twice he said, unless you repent, you will perish. That's a message in the book of Jonah. He says, go there and cry against it. And he went and preached. You must repent. When we share the gospel with people, we have to tell them there is hope. If you repent, if you do not repent, there is no hope. You're under God's sword of justice. Repent means to change your mind and turn around. Like you're going the wrong way on a one-way street. You're heading toward disaster and a a head-on collision. God says, uh, you better repent. You better turn. And I guess I'm an old-fashioned preacher that still believes turn or burn. Turn from sin or you will burn in hell. And that's basically what Jonah was called to say, just eight words. And we'll get to the response later. Okay, lastly this evening, we're just looking at the first three verses, verse three now. But Jonah, remember last week I said there's, this what's called an adversative particle, kind of like yet. He said, go and preach against them. Their wickedness has come up before me. By the way, that in verse two, it's, uh, it's like God's high up and the uh, smoke of their filthy sin is rising up to them and God says that's awful. It stinks. It's rising up. You ever smell something that's foul, burning garbage or I remember we came to church here once and there was some kind of dead squirrel or something and you ever smell where something's been dead for a week or two. You say something died. It stinks. Get it out of here. God says, that's what sin does to him. It turns his stomach. He hates it. He's disgusted by it. He says, their wickedness has come up before me. But, verse 3, Jonah arose. Wait a second. God said, verse 2, arise. Well, he arose and he went in the wrong direction. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice the irony. Nineveh's sin rose up. God said, rise up. Jonah rose up. But he went in the wrong direction in doing that. He was more like the Ninevites whose sin rose up than the way he should have risen up. And it says he rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now we know God is everywhere. Does the Bible say that? Psalm 139. If, if, we, uh, if you go up to heaven, God's there. If you go to hell, God's there You can't run from him any more than you can run from air or run from your own shadow. Where are you going to run? God's everywhere. But when it says from the presence of the Lord, that refers to the special presence of God. God is everywhere, but sometimes he manifests himself in a special way at certain times and certain places. Brother Vic, this will preach. He didn't want to be where he should be. God had met him and he felt something. He heard God's voice saying, go. Okay, I'm going. I'm getting away from that. Where God met me and I am leaving. Same thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned. Same phrase. It says, the Lord came to them in the garden after they had sinned. Adam, where are you? And it says, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord behind some trees and put fig leaves on as if God couldn't see them in the bushes. But that's what sin does. We hide from God. Same phrase is also used of Cain. After he had slew Abel and God warned him, it says he fled from the presence of the Lord. Let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever felt God is really near? and It's almost like you're afraid to open your eyes. That's the presence of the Lord. He manifests it. And Christians have said, oh, I felt it like when I was in the hospital once and Jesus visited me. And it's like I could almost touch him. Others say at communion or maybe in your devotions at home, reading the Bible, and you say, God is here. You're like Jacob that woke up from his dream and says, God was here and I did not know it, but I know it now. Have you ever sensed the immediate presence of God? And it's like, He's that close. I can almost feel him. And when you read the Bible, you can almost hear the very words. That's what Jonah sensed when God spoke to him, and he didn't want that. So he ran from it. He should have said, like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, it's good that we're here. He didn't want to come down from the mountain. If we're in the presence of God, we don't want to leave that presence. Lord, stay, but it's only a temporary manifestation. But if our heart's not right with God, it makes us uncomfortable. And that's what we see with Jonah. And there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. We should seek and enjoy the presence of God, but Jonah didn't, and nor do sinners at large. That's why lost sinners don't want to go to a church that preaches the Bible. They don't want to be where the Holy Spirit is. But like as we saw time after time in the book of Amos, what was one of the lessons in Amos? You can run, but you cannot hide. And Jonah would say, amen, I tried to run, I tried to hide. You can't run when God's on your trail. He's got your scent. I hope you're not running from God. That's what sinners are doing. Anybody that says to you, well, I'm searching for God. Josh, you've heard that when you share with the gospel. They say, well, I'm searching for God, and I study different religions. I'm searching for God and truth. That's nonsense. They're running from God. It says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 11, there's none that seek after God. They're running from the presence of God. They need to repent and turn around and run to God in God's way. But sometimes Christians are like Jonah where we flee from his presence, such as? At this point, I stop preaching and start meddling as a pastor. This is where people that play hooky from church are acting like Jonah. Does not God promise he will meet with us when his people meet together where two or three are gathered in my name? There I will be. He blesses us with his presence when we study his word, when we sing, when we worship, when we fellowship. But when a Christian doesn't have a legitimate excuse to stay home like he's sick or he's traveling or something like that, and he stays home because he is up too late the night before, and he stays at home and makes up excuses, he's no different than Jonah. He doesn't want to be in the presence of the Lord. Why? It will rebuke his sin. As I said, well sometimes like Jonah. But we need to seek the presence of the Lord. It says in the book of Psalms, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But Christians sometimes flee from that. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to go to Sunday school, prayer meeting, Bible study, or anything like that. They make cheap excuses like Jonah. And sometimes they end up going in the wrong direction to places they shouldn't be anyway. And they don't want to do what God has told them to do. God told Jonah, Arise, go, and speak my word to them. Tell them the gospel. Isn't that what Jesus said to us? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. Now that doesn't mean everybody's a missionary, everybody's an evangelist. Every Christian should share the gospel But there are some Christians that are not even able to, maybe physical limitations, but they can still help that. How? Prayer. Prayer warriors to pray for those that are out there sharing the gospel, pray for lost people like that. I'll give you an illustration. If you're in the armed forces in a time of war, did you know that in the army, less than half, probably less than a fourth, are actually frontline infantry that have a rifle Most people that are in the army, they're cooks, they drive trucks. Recently I read uh, the biography of R.C. Sproul and his father was in the army in World War II. You know what he was? He was an accountant in the Air Force. And then after the war they said, what did you do? He said, well, I flew the best desk in the Air Force. I did my part. Every Christian should do his part. You may not be out there... Like like Josh and, and some of our people sharing the gospel on the streets and going to colleges. You may not be there witnessing to a friend or a relative. Maybe you're not able to. But you can still pray for those. You can be like the supply lines in the army saying, I'm supplying them with prayer. I'm praying for them. And so in that respect, you can avoid being like Joni. You can say, well, I'm doing my part in this business of getting the gospel out. God wants all of us to be part of this sharing the gospel with pagans like Jonah was supposed to be. Are you doing that? May God touch your heart. May God put someone on your heart that you have not shared the gospel with and you have the golden opportunity to. You remember a little over a year ago I preached on those very solemn verses in the book of Ezekiel where God said, Ezekiel, yes, sir, I've made you a watchman on the wall. If you see the sword of the enemy coming, warn the people, blow the trumpet. Now, if you warn them and they repent, good. If you warn them and they don't prepare, well, at least you've done your job. They're gonna suffer death. Blood will be on their own heads. But he said, but if you see that danger coming, you don't warn them. They're gonna die. And Ezekiel, you listening to me, boy? I'm gonna hold you accountable. You could have warned them. And you didn't, look at your hands, you got blood on your hands. That's strong words, folks. But Jonah, it didn't make any effect on, that, on him. Does it make effect on us? Behold, we are like Jonah. God said to Jonah, go. And he said, Lord, no. Never say no to God. If you don't understand it, it goes against your grain. Never say no to God. God. Always say, yes, Lord. And use whatever spiritual gift and opportunity God has given you, otherwise you're like Jonah. Now where did he go? The text says he arose to go from the presence of the Lord. That's where he went from. Where did he go to? It says he went down to Joppa. That's a seacoast city in southern Israel, so it took him a few days to get there. What was he thinking about all that time? He was hiding his conscience, making excuses. Well, God can send someone else to innovate, not me. Lord, I quit. You can't quit when God calls you to do something. But God gave him opportunity, and even when he, it says he is paying the fare. I wonder what his conscience was saying to him. He's probably cutting a deal, making excuses, just like we do that. So he we went to Joppa. That city is still around today. It's called Jaffa. Have you ever heard of Jaffa oranges? They grow a lot of oranges in that part of Israel. And I've seen it on various kinds of orange juice. Jaffa oranges. So he went down there. There's also Jaffa mentioned in the New Testament when Peter went there and met somebody. But he went down to Jaffa only in order to get on a ship. And it says he found a ship going to Tarshish. Now that's not Tarsus where the Apostle Paul was from. That was north of Israel uh, in the area of Syria, close to Turkey. No, he didn't go there. He went as far west as he possibly could. God said, go east, young man. He says, I'm going west. I'm getting out of here in the opposite direction. It was actually a reference to another city on the west coast of Spain. And at this time, that was as far west as you could get beyond that. It's just the Atlantic Ocean. So he says, I'm going as far away as I can. The Spaniards called it tartesis in Spanish. And he could have said, well, I'm going. But he didn't go where God told him to go. Lesson for us is don't substitute God's orders. If he told you to do something, don't say, well, Lord, how about if I do this instead? No, God said, I didn't tell you to do that. I told you to do this. It's God calling you to do something. Don't substitute it. You fathers, God has told you to teach your children the word of God and don't make excuses and say, well, I'll read them Grimm's fairy tales instead or we'll stay up night and watch a movie. No, God didn't tell you to do that. I told you to teach them the Bible. Don't substitute for God's orders like Jonah did. Go where he tells you to go and do it. And by the way, sometimes he says go and sometimes he says stay. There's a lesson here. God hasn't told all of us to literally go to another country, God does call missionaries. We support several. For them, it would be a sin if they stayed. But if God tells us, don't go, stay, and pray for them and support them, it would be wrong for you to go. You need to stay if God says stay. Go if he says go. You know the old thing, says some people are sent and some people are just went without being sent. Know the difference and obey God. Now notice these repeated words in this first chapter. It says that not only, you know, arise three times, but it says he went down to Joppa, verse 3. Verse 3, he went down to the ship, verse 3. Then verse 15, he went down into the sea, verse 15. And then verse 17, he went down into the fish. Lesson here is when you run from God, only direction you can go is down, 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 down. Makes it harder to repent and turn around and go back up, up, up. Lesson from Jonah. And it says he paid the fare. It was very costly because this would take weeks on a ship to go that. And you wonder where he got the money from. And he's going to use it all to disobey God. Are we using the funds God has given us on sinful things or for his glory? But he paid this fare down to the very last shekel. He paid the fare and his expensive. Lesson here is sin always costs us more than we think. Another lesson is he was running from God and God allowed the devil to provide just the right ship. Where are you going? Trashish. I want a ticket. How much? If you're running from God, God will always provide a ship for you to get away from him. But it'd be wrong to get on the devil's ship. When we obey God, this is interesting, God pays the fare. You ever see the example of that in the New Testament? Someone getting on a ship, going in the same basic direction as Jonah on this ship. It was the Apostle Paul. God had said, you're going to make it to Rome, but first go down there to Jerusalem. If he had paid a ticket to go from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, it would have cost him a lot of money. But you remember the rest of the story? He was put on trial, he appealed to Caesar, and they said, well, you're a Roman citizen. We're going to send you to Caesar on a ship. He didn't have to pay the ticket. Got a free trip. When you obey God, God pays the fare. When you disobey him, it's going to cost you more than you think. Count the cost of obeying God. Last lesson Jonah had to learn eventually, but he hadn't learned it at this point. The Apostle Paul says, Woe to me if I preach not the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 6. Woe to Jonah, he didn't. Woe to us if we disobey God in anything we know God wants us to do. Woe to us. But by God's grace, that woe can be turned to a blessing. But it's going to cost us repentance. Are we like Jonah? Or are we like Jesus? Let's pray. Father, guide us as we study this book of Jonah week by week. Help us to be like Jesus and not like Jonah. Let us go and do whatever you tell us, O Lord, without excuse, without delay, and without having to pay the fare. Bless us to that end, O Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.